Welcome back to the Dispatch Book Club. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, and this month we are rounding out our first quarter's theme, Thinking About Thinking. And we've read Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know by Adam Grant. Joining me this month is the Dispatch's own Harvest Prude. I think this will be a very fun conversation from someone who might approach this book quite differently, generationally, family-wise, all sorts of things. Um, as a journalist, a reporter, I'm really excited to see what all Harvest took away from this book. Harvest, welcome to the book club. Thank you. Great to be here. So first of all, I want to talk about just like Adam Grant and this genre of books. Um, he's written actually quite a few. I've read originals. Have you read any other Adam Grant books? I haven't, no, though I know Originals is his big one. Yeah, and like this sort of comes, you know, on the shoulders of Malcolm Gladwell and this genre of book. And maybe all of this stems from Daniel Kahneman's, you know, thinking fast and slow. And I will tell you, like, I love Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, for instance, but I find the books, like after you've read one, you've kind of read them all and it follows this like really set uh, formula. And I, I'm always really torn about the Adam Grant books. Originals, I thought, did a really good job taking the format and making something kind of new and surprising out of it. I thought this was less original than Originals. <laughs> um, and I missed some of the Daniel Kahneman uh, rigor in some ways. There's like a lot of cartoons in this book, which I found delightful and funny and smart. But when you think about it, you're like, hmm, this is a pretty short book if you think about how many cartoons are in it. <laughs> totally. Yes. I think this genre and I, full confession, I really like Malcolm Gladwell. I have not been a fan as, uh, of uh, some of his newer books, David and Goliath and Talking to Strangers specifically, but really enjoyed The Tipping Point and Blink as well. But yeah, this this genre of book can get a little bit um it, it's almost more prey to the whole this could have been an article yes exactly it, yeah any <laughs> other genre I think so um I also had some conflicting yeah feelings like some of the examples really are helpful but like you know each chapter is story some quasi-scientific literature some takeaways end of story and on the one hand Structure is really helpful when you're reading a book like this. Um, and on the other hand, it could feel, yeah, a little bit reductive. And just, it, did you, I hate saying this, a little bit insulting to the audience, a little bit patronizing? Yes, I'm very, I'm actually very curious to hear what you maybe felt like you already knew versus what you felt like was new and challenging, uh, because I definitely have thoughts on along those lines as well. All right, well, let's dive right into the book itself. Um, the first part of the book is really about telling people it's, it is intended, I think, to be, be quite persuasive on having this sort of scientist mindset versus preacher mindset is what he calls it. Um, I thought the scout mindset was just the best I've ever read on this and not at all patronizing to her audience about how these different mindsets exist even among smart, thoughtful people, even among the people who are choosing to read this book, who almost by definition want to have a scout mindset. That's what made that so good. 
is that you read the book thinking, well, obviously I have a scout mindset and that's why I'm reading this book. And then as you're reading her book, you're like, Ooh, I could do better. Yep. I could do better. Um, so the beginning of the book, right, he's talking about having the scientist mindset. Uh, and I mean, it is helpful to have a Anytime someone can remind you of the Dunning-Kruger effect, this idea that you always overestimate your knowledge on the subjects you know the least about. Honestly, I could have that poster up in my room, especially if someone's a, you know, TV pundit. Just that's a good reminder to wake up with in like daily prayers. Just uh, and don't forget the Dunning-Kruger effect during your day, Sarah. Uh, so that first part of the book and being enthusiastic when you're wrong. That was actually the part I think in that first section that I loved the most about when you turn out to be wrong about something, you can sort of shrink inside and be like, Ooh, or you'd be like, Ooh, I'm less wrong than I was yesterday. That's exciting information. I did like that as a, as a tool and trick. Yeah. Jumping in on that. I also, the first section of the book made me think of like another book sort of in this genre, um, which is Mindset by Carol Dweck, totally. where she does talk about, um, yeah, growth mindset and the idea that your intelligence, your abilities, they're not fixed. You don't have to be limited by that. And I felt like this book, especially the first half, did a good job of talking about how you don't have to be bound by, you know, previous beliefs or previous um, intellectual frameworks for the world. Um, so I did enjoy that. And your to your point, um, just how being wrong is an opportunity for growth. Um, that's something that reminded me of that book as well. I think another thing that I really appreciated about the book was on um, page 18, he talks about how sometimes we favor feeling right versus actually being right. Um, and especially when it comes to our own like knowledge and opinions rather than like forming second opinions. Um, and it just made me think about how a lot of times the way we feel is very much steeped in our background and conditioning and our own experiences. Um, and like what may feel right can actually be very unhealthy. Um, so an example like I'm thinking back to sort of the diet culture of like the 80s and the 90s, right? It seems like everybody was always on this like fad diet. Um, and I think, at least for my generation, like a lot of our moms were uh, kind of raised in that um, and just how normalized that was. And so it, when you come out of that, like eating three full meals a day may feel very strange and actually wrong. Um, so there's this idea that you can uh, retrain your intuition or retrain your, um, I guess, nurturing as far as that goes. And I, I kind of like approached the first half of this book the same way. Like he's saying that even if we were conditioned to think certain things, we can actually like re-examine that and retrain that. So that was like a helpful framework for me. That's interesting though, because I do feel like there are certain frameworks that are built in childhood that are the hardest to dismantle. Because some of those frameworks are absolutely necessary to keeping the house up. You know, maybe how many times you eat a day or that, um, you know, fatty foods are bad or something. Maybe that's not necessary to keep the house up, but it's coming alongside all these very basic things on um, I, don't hit people. That's something we're working on right now in our house. Um, and, you know, while I want my son, for instance, to revisit maybe everything in the framework that I'm giving him, it's going to be hard for him to revisit some of them. And so how, how do you even 
you know, a fish in water, right? Like, how do you even know what is a, a part of the framework that you can't revisit or shouldn't revisit? And what are those things that you're taking for granted that actually, you know, like intermittent fasting? <laughs> I think the diet thing is such a good example because it's part of your every day. And so by the time you even know that you're doing it, you've been doing it for 15 plus years and you have inherited it in some respect. Yeah, I think he didn't really answer that question, right? Of what about the things that maybe are super useful and basic to just how you live um, that aren't bad, that don't need to necessarily be rethought. There wasn't really a good... um, metric for what to challenge um, as far as what you've inherited or what you've adopted. Uh, so, yeah. You I, can tell I, he's so uncomfortable with the potential of stepping into a political topic. Yes. <laughs> that the whole book almost feels like he's trying to avoid it to the detriment of the book to some extent. It keeps some conversation superficial that probably should have been deeper. Yeah. And I think what he chose to press in on were, you know, he talked about a couple like spicier topics. Like he talked about um, vaccine skepticism and denial. Uh, He had some, you know, flat earth conversation there, which I don't know how uh, controversial that actually is. But But there was um, climate change. It was the KKK guy. Climate change, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, like the... (laughs) KKK guy and flat earth are sort of the same thing to me. Like the whole, you know, one of the things he, he talks about at one point is steel man versus straw man, something that in the dispatch we care very much about, um, setting up the KKK or flat eartherism as the difficult conversations in context, it actually worked very well. But when you step back, you're like, okay, but that's something basically 99.999, if not a hundred percent of anyone who's going to pick up this book, Um, already agrees with. And perhaps this book could have been more challenging if it had uh, tried to delve into some of those issues that clearly his audience is not going to agree with. Climate change, I thought, was the closest he came. And it sort of, it taps along the surface of it a little bit. Now, the point he was making in the climate change section was about increasing complexity in difficult conversations. So instead of having the binary of people who agree with climate change and people who deny climate change, that actually there's a whole spectrum of views and assuming that everyone has to fall into one of those two categories is going to make those conversations nearly impossible because you're not even able to think through what the other side actually thinks about an issue. And climate change is a great example to use on that, but probably not the best one. Frankly, abortion is probably the best one. Yeah. And his section like did give you helpful tools to approach conversations that maybe are more polarizing or ones you will run into more often, like whether it's abortion or, you know, gun laws or whatever. Um, so an example that I'm thinking of is he he talks about this doctor who uh, was talking with like a vaccine skeptical mom Um, And she said the moment that really uh, sort of let she was able to let her guard down was when he said, I respect your decision as someone who wants the best for your kids. And from there, she did choose to vaccinate her children. Um, And so, yeah, he talks about like the importance of respecting whoever it is that you're talking about and of distinguishing, like, I guess, the skeptics from the hardcore deniers. Um, 
But I, I guess on this section of the book, I am a little bit curious about how much you maybe felt like these were interpersonal skills you maybe already had. <laughs> <laughs> so with all, with originals and with this book, I started out really disliking the book in the beginning in both and started liking them more and more as the book went on until there were chapters toward the end that I really enjoyed. But you're right that in this sort of early section, um, there are parts that I thought were patronizing. Like everyone, everyone again, who's reading this book uh, is like, yes, listening. Yep. I know that's a good idea. (laughs) Active listening. If anything, uh, and he does discuss this, but I was thinking, of course, about polling and focus groups and how you guys know how much I hate issue polling. And some of that is exactly from this active listening problem that when you have someone on the phone and you're so engaged with listening to their answers, you can quite accidentally, subconsciously affect their answers. Um, and and it's why I think issue polling is so difficult to actually parse anything from is because this is a, it's like an active culture, if you will. And I mean that in the bacterial sense, not in like a societal sense. Um, You know, it's growing and changing based on the person asking the questions and how exactly the questions are phrased and whether the, the person answering them now, like the vaccine skeptic, oh, well, I feel like you respect me. And so I'll start giving you a little bit more of what you want to hear. And you know, it, it goes around like that. And so it's actually pretty complicated versus just, you know, well, active listening is good, steel manning the other side. But there again, he later starts talking about, well, <laughs> it only works to steel man if you actually can put yourself in the other side's shoes, which most people can't um, because they don't really know the opposing side of the issue that they care about. I remember uh, in 2016, I was teaching at Harvard And my students, of course, were mostly liberal, very respectful, smart, engaged kids who um, did not know and could not imagine and had not been able to find any arguments opposed to gun control. How are they supposed to steel man that? (laughs) Like they really couldn't think about it. Now, I wish at the time that I had used that as a learning opportunity to say, okay, Tell me everything you can think of, like try to just get, you know, creative brainstorming on why someone might be opposed to gun control. I didn't, but I think if I had, their answers would have been very uh, superficial slash vaguely insulting, like culture. They grew up with guns and feel like, you know, someone's attacking their culture, which is, by the way, not untrue. It's just uh, not enough. You know, I'd, I'd want them to dig deeper. Um, my favorite chapter, by the way, speaking of that by far in this book, and we'll get to it, I guess, in a little bit is the teaching chapter, how to be a great teacher. Honestly, the whole book was worth that chapter because in any part of our lives, no matter what you do in your job, you will be the teacher at some point, whether it's your kids or at brunch with your girlfriends or actually teaching at some point or being a guest lecturer, whatever else you will be teaching someone something in your life. And that's where I thought he really shined, probably because he's a teacher. <laughs> yeah, I this book also made me think about like how I ask questions as a journalist and how I approach 
interviews. Um, but more than that, um, his whole point about how we should think like scientists, um, I just started thinking about all of the ways that journalism is also sort of, it, it takes a scientific approach and in some sense, reporting specifically. Um, you know, the idea that you're going out into the field to report a story. You often have a thesis or an idea going in. You're like, I am going to go report on this topic. I think I'm going to find this. Um, but then you have to like test that during interviews um, and sort of cover it and see if it holds up. Um, and then from that point, how crucial it is to be flexible and adapt and not be like wed to your original story. Because I, I think um, just thinking of criticisms of the media, one of the prevailing ones is that, you know, journalists are biased and they kind of report narratives that are very agenda driven. Um, and so one thing I appreciated about this book, I think, is that it just made me, it was a good reminder that if you do find something different, um, you have to be willing to go where the story takes you. Oh, that's such a good point. You know, his section on sort of rejecting the binary, this, you know, I mentioned it in the climate change context that everyone's either a climate, you know, acceptor or denier. Um, and that obviously that's not true. And there's a huge spectrum of people who are skeptical uh, or they think it's, you know, happening, but maybe not man-made. I mean, there's any number of ways that someone can approach this issue that don't fall into a neat binary gets trapped up in journalism a lot. And I think there's a few different ways that it happens um, because I think most journalists think that they are doing exactly what you just described because I think that they are. The problem, though, happens before that. It's the stories they choose to pursue, the thesis that they start with, why they have that thesis to begin with, why that story versus another. Um, and it, it leads to... For instance, I think in the mainstream media, um, immigration getting undercovered because that's not really what the journalists are into. It's not really what they see day to day. It, this Ted Cruz ad from 2016 has always been so interesting to me. I don't know if you remember it, but he shows a bunch of um, people in suits with briefcases running across the Rio Grande at the border. And the message is, I'm going to get it slightly wrong, but it says something like, um, if immigrants were coming after their jobs, they'd care a lot more. Um, and there is a little kernel of truth to that in the sense that um, immigration obviously gets covered by the mainstream press, but compared to how important it was to the 2016 election or where voters rank it, not so much. And you end up with this dichotomy where it's covered a lot in conservative right-wing outlets and not covered nearly as much in the left-wing outlets or where it is, the narrative is meant to like confound expectations or something. Uh, and I find that really fascinating because what then I hear from people sometimes in mainstream media is, well, if we cover that though, we sound like a right-wing outlet. And so then the two just move further and further apart because they can't cover it the way the other one's covering, or they sound like they're, you know, part of quote, that other team. And that's where the binary gets built in at that really, really early stage where it's almost like a self-identity thing. You don't want to see yourself as something you dislike, a right-wing reporter or a left-wing reporter or a mainstream reporter. And so it's the stories you choose to cover or the narratives that you try to find about those stories uh, 
And then of course, yeah, when you're out there actually reporting them and you're talking to people, are you accidentally targeting people who are already going to agree with that narrative? Or when someone disagrees, you dismiss that or only include it as the kicker at the end of the piece as like, well, not everyone agrees. I've had 27 quotes and here's the one that's on the other side. That's a tough balance because a, a news story can't include everything. And I think also on that last point, um, it's also like what drives clicks and what drives eyeballs and not to turn this into a discussion of like what's wrong with the media. But um, I do think, you know, if you have a quote where it's someone saying something absolutely outrageous versus sort of a longer discussion where someone's giving you a nuanced perspective, like what are you going to go with? You're probably maybe going to go with the sexier quote. Um, It's the jaywalking problem. Jay Leno didn't put people on air who got the answer correct. And even who got the answer wrong toward the end, he put people on air who got the answer wrong in a funny, stupid way. Exactly. And so I think, um, you know, just when he talked about it is the hardcore, you know, climate deniers or the people who are most to the extremes that that get the press, um, that get the clicks, the stories. Uh, part of that, I think, just ha- part of, I guess, the anecdote, anecdote, an- antidote. There we go. That's what I'm looking for. Part of the antidote to that is seeking out non-polarizing spaces. Like if we genuinely do find in polling or just the way people feel about an issue that the majority of people are in the middle somewhere and there's a spectrum, but if they are in the middle, then there needs to be more proportional representation of those views. So, um, you know, maybe not going to the uh, climate denial conference or the <laughs> climate fervor conference, but going to the like, I don't know what's in the middle. Like <laughs> we have questions, but we're maybe on board. <laughs> yes. That yeah. conference, it's a long acronym, but there you right. are. Um, yeah. So I, another part of the book that I really enjoyed, but have questions and left with a lot of questions was the anecdote about the forecasters and that the best forecasters and predictors are the ones who are updating their beliefs the most often. (sighs) Yeah. Okay. But you know, if you're constantly starting from scratch and updating your beliefs, um, I don't think that's going to get you anywhere particularly good either. And it doesn't leave any room for expertise. Something that I assume Adam Grant actually thinks is pretty valuable, but in his version Experts should just start from scratch every time, constantly updating their beliefs. And I'll give you a really concrete example of where this is coming into my own life. The midterm elections. (laughs) So, you know, after the Dobbs draft leaked from the Supreme Court, um, David French and I were talking about this a lot of would this affect the country politically? And at least you know, as I've said before, there's two ways that you can affect an election, turning out voters who are either uh, otherwise going to stay home or voters changing their mind from one candidate to another. That's it. Those are the only two ways that an issue or anything can affect an election. And so you can break it down in that sense pretty easily. And so in, in the Dobbs draft, I asked myself, is that going to change someone's vote or is it going to get them to vote who would otherwise stay home? And it seemed like it would probably increase enthusiasm among Democrats. But the problem was that turnout in 2018 was really, really high. So you're trying to find people who didn't turn out in 2018 
but who were somehow motivated by this. Now, there was some nuance to that in the sense that like, well, they did turn out in 2018, but they weren't going to turn out in 2022, but now they might turn out, you know, I, I acknowledge that it's not quite as simple when you start really breaking it down. But okay, to make the long story shorter, in the end, looking at all the data that we had, when then Dobbs eventually came out, I just didn't see a lot to tell me that this was going to have a huge impact on the election. There was a primary in Texas uh, in May between the pro-life Democrat and the pro-choice Democrat, and the pro-life Democrat, the last one in the House, won. So you'd think if it was going to change anyone's minds, if it was going to turn out anyone, it would be in a Democratic primary. Like this was a really good experiment in a lot of ways that we got to run, and it didn't. But the narrative out there in the press, especially this week, has been Dobbs has made this huge difference. Look at this New York special election where it was a Republican plus seven district and the Democrat won it by two. Democrats are saying this is because of Dobbs. And Pew uh, put out some data showing that the issue um, in terms of how people rate it for importance among Democrats has gone up something like 20 points. Now, not for Republicans, which again means it's not necessarily changing people's votes, um, but it is causing people maybe to vote who wouldn't otherwise. You have the Kansas referendum, but that was an issue, not a candidate. Anyway, like, okay, on the one hand, I don't want to let my previous prediction color my future predictions. You know, I'm not just going to stick with my old thoughts because they were mine and therefore I'll be embarrassed to change my mind. But... Um, it's hard, I guess, to separate out I'm being prideful uh, by not changing my previous prediction versus, well, the same things that got me to my previous prediction, that level of expertise and sort of knowledge of looking at the data, I'm applying that still to this data. And while I think my confidence level has dropped substantially on whether abortion is going to make a difference in the fall, I think overall, probably my prediction hasn't changed much, but I am trying to follow <laughs> the Adam Grant advice here of, um, you know, updating as much as I possibly can, but it's harder because it's not clear. You don't start from scratch each time you can't. And even his main predictor that he points to in the book, right? He was saying that he believed at one point that Donald Trump had a real chance of winning the election. But if you actually look at his prediction model, as you got into October and November of 2016, his predictions of whether Donald Trump would win the election were infinitesimal, um, you know, single digits, I think, or less. And he was like, well, I let my, um, I didn't want Donald Trump to win, so I decided he couldn't win. I don't know that that's how most people or at least all people think about it, I normally have the opposite reaction. The more I don't want something to happen, the more I overestimate the likelihood that it's going to happen. Um, so I don't know, like that whole, the whole model of updating constantly sounds like a really good idea, but I think you'd need almost like a life coach to help you really build out your own mental systems to do it very well. But then how do you choose the life coach that also, <laughs> you know, has yeah. the like authoritative worldview. Um, this is maybe a bit of a tangent, but another book that this book made me think of a little bit was um, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. Mm. Um, and yeah, th that book, I guess for those who aren't familiar, is is the, the book, it's the genesis of the phrase paradigm shift, right? It's like this <laughs> idea that... <laughs> 
The book's a big um, deal. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Like if it created the term yes. paradigm shift. Yeah, it was a big deal. Yes, yeah, super uh, formative like book on how scientific theories develop. Um, but so it, it I kind of felt like this book was sort of like that book light, right? Like the idea that you have this certain paradigm that you're operating in and you can literally be blind to evidence when something doesn't comport with your worldview to the point where you dismiss those discrepancies or anomalies. I think at one point he talked about how um, people will, if they don't like the solution to a problem or like the answer to a problem, they will just kind of dismiss that the problem is even there. And I, and I felt like it's sort of similar. Like if you have, let's say, these discrepancies that sort of stack up in your current mode of thinking or worldview, it's like far more convenient and comfortable to just ignore those things. Um, and I'm not saying that this applies to your example of polling um, necessarily, but um, I do think what the book misses um, is that even when your paradigm isn't 100%, right, you don't maybe have the right interpretation on something, um, there's still like a lot of life that is lived and work that happens <laughs> during those times, right? Like, um, and, and it, it, the structure of scientific revolution talks about this, like when they were operating under like Newtonian me mechanics, there was a lot of science that like was furthered, even if some things about their like sort of worldview was, was incomplete or um, they hadn't gotten to like, I don't know, quantum physics or whatever was next. But um, so, yeah, I think that that is also where I sort of struggled with it is there's not really a way to tell when you need to update something, what to question. Um, and I do feel like oftentimes it's sort of just as you live life and are exposed to more experiences or more information that sort of like like you're talking about, you're confronted with this new evidence you shouldn't just immediately abandon the old thing. You have to kind of like sort out when has it reached critical mass. And you hit the nail on the head in terms of like, there's all this other stuff that happens even under wrong paradigms. And there's a reason for that, not just in the scientific way, but like in our lives, there's a reason that we build these foundations and we don't wake up every morning having to rethink everything we've all been taught for every day of our lives up until that point. Evolutionarily, that's exactly what we want these little brains to do. We want shortcuts. We want things to get banked and not revisited. And so while books like Scout Mindset or Think Again and all of those, I think are helpful to remind us of these background programs running, it's also worth remembering why the background programs are there. There's a reason that uh, you are very likely to have adopted the politics of your parents because that makes for a cohesive family unit and family units are more important than politics. And so if we're gonna stick to one without thinking too much about it, you want people to stick to family without thinking too much about it, not to stick to politics um, and keep second guessing their family, for instance. And again, that's, that's just a, an evolutionary strategy that has worked out pretty well for humans and unfortunately might actually be breaking down a little right now. And we're seeing kind of the results of that where politics becomes a religion of sorts where it's not second guessed. And that's where books like this can come in really handy. Like, well, actually, just wait a second. Do revisit some of those priors that you've brought 
with you. And that's where my favorite part of the book comes in that I want to spend the rest of this podcast on, which is the teaching part. Um, and it's not just, again, it's not just teaching kids and it's not just being a teacher or professor, but it's all of those things and ourselves. And I love the quote that he has from Michelle Obama, where she says, basically, the single worst question you can ask a kid is what do they want to be when they grow up? Oh, yes. First of all, we all know we hated that question as a kid. And yet, we struggle to really find anything else to ask children. <laughs> and he points out all the problems with asking that of kids. Um, a, they may be kind of lost for a long time in what they want that answer to be and think that they should have an answer. And then B, some of those kids are going to have an answer and then think that they're going to stick to it because they had that answer when they were eight years old. That's a prior worth revisiting a lot is what you think you want to do. And I'm sure we all have versions of this story, but you know, I went to college as a math and um, math major who, who thought that I would do math and chemistry because I loved math and chemistry in high school and was very good at them. And I realized in college that I didn't love math and chemistry. I loved, A, being good at them, and <laughs> I liked my teachers. Those are very different things. If my identity had been, I think, a little more wrapped up in that or um, mirrored back to me more consistently growing up, I think it would have been much harder to have that realization in college. Um, instead, it was a pretty weakly held identity, to be honest. And so I was pretty quick to be like, this gives me a stomach ache. Do I want to go through my life with a stomach ache? No, I do not. <laughs> that was literally, it, it would give me a stomach ache. Um, so some of the things he talks about that I thought were great was not giving answers to kids. And here we're talking really about elementary school kids um, or junior high or something, like really building in it, building it in as a question or a challenge instead of an answer. Um, and then, of course, one of the things that I found fascinating and a real aha moment was the college class where they test the students on the lecture format versus the active learning format and ask the kids which they liked more. And they all said lecture, which was really surprising because you'd think they would actually enjoy the active learning. But of course, me, myself, I absolutely would have picked lecture. I think the active learning stuff where you're in a group and everyone's trying to find the answer that obviously the professor already knows is very frustrating and time wasting. And I would just always sit back and wait for someone else to figure it out, um, which doesn't sound like me, but I hate group projects. Uh, and so, yeah, all the students picked the lecture. But when you actually tested them on the material the people in the active learning did a lot better. So their own preferences were, stated preferences were not correct. It turns out they preferred lecture because yeah, sitting there and hearing someone really smart talk to you is awesome. It's why I like podcasts. But if you actually want to remember the material, doing it yourself and having to struggle to get there as annoying and less interesting as that is in some respects actually helps you retain the information. And that might be the aha moment that I take away from this book more than anything else. <laughs> um, and the drafts, there's this great page where it shows the first graders draft of a butterfly and then as he, you know, gets peer criticism of what's wrong with his butterfly, and his butterfly, by the way, very much looks like a first grader druid in that draft. It is roughly how I would currently draw a butterfly because I have the artistic ability a little below first grade, to be honest. I could not draw his final draft. I am convinced of it. 
And yet this first grader through peer criticism was able draft after draft to improve kind of slowly at first, I might know the butterfly arguably got worse. (laughs) But then in the end, it's like, again, a much better butterfly than I could have drawn, at least I think. And wow. And to have the patience as a parent or as a peer to help people through that drafting process, either literally or metaphorically, that's something that I think I can really improve on. Yeah, that's that's really good. Um, and for those of you who are like just listening to the podcast and maybe haven't read the book, we go from sort of like some squiggles <laughs> and just some, you know, I, you can tell it's a butterfly. You for can sure. see the wings. But then final version, there's shading. Yeah. There's like, you know, uh, different uh patterns on the wings there's like yeah it just it's it could fly off the page basically which is very impressive for a six-year-old um and at the end of that chapter he you know says like seeing a six-year-old undergo that kind of metamorphosis made me think again about how quickly children can become comfortable rethinking and revising um and I think maybe that's like the word right that like sums up the really good stuff in this book is the idea of metamorphosis and the idea of being okay with growing and um, learning and changing and like enjoying the process as well, which I think this chapter captured quite well. And when he talks, when he tries to apply that to adults in the career context, and he talks about his friend who knew he had to be a doctor when he grew up because uh, he came from a family of immigrants and they had really inculcated that like he needed to become a doctor. Uh, He at various points wanted to quit and decided he'd come too far. And lo and behold, he's a great, it sounds like world-renowned doctor who hates his job. Um, you know, that to me was almost the more, it's like, it basically ends the book and it's pretty depressing because while on the one hand, sure, you can start over your career as an adult. My dad um, started a whole new career when he was 40 years old. He went to law school when I was 10 years old. Most people aren't him. That's nuts. As someone who is turning the age that my dad was, I'm like, what? (laughs) To have a 10-year-old and, you know, totally start over is not going to be realistic for a lot of people. Um, And instead, for me, the takeaway from that, again, and and this is coming from someone who has, um, well, this is the first job I've held for more than two years, but I had a career in Republican politics that I thought I would have forever. And then it was gone. You know, I think listeners at this point kind of know my story a little bit, but both by choice and not by choice. You know, I didn't choose for the party to change, but I did, I guess, choose to not change with it. Um, But I don't feel like I woke up one day and was like, um, well, I think I will switch careers. Instead, I very much felt like my career was taken away from me by sort of these outside factors. That is, it has been really hard in a lot of ways because I loved my career. And I don't think we necessarily want adults constantly, again, revisiting all of their priors. And, you know, he mentions having a six-month check-in on your job and are you happy and should you switch jobs? I don't know that that's going to foster a lot of marital family happiness. Um, I think it is good for a spouse to feel not totally locked in 
that like the other spouse would um, be really disappointed if they didn't want to stay in this job or if they might go make less money. Like that is, that is part of being a supportive spouse to some extent, but you also need to be realistic as you take on life responsibilities beyond yourself that maybe your job is not every day going to be your passion project. Maybe your kids are your passion project or your garden or something else. And just be more open to finding that being a good friend or a good brother or whatever else in other, in other parts of your life. But it does make it really important as a parent to help build your child's skill set and toolbox, if you will, before they lock themselves into those responsibilities or that, you know, generalized path, helping them question everything and try everything and fail at things and revise and metamorphosize. That I feel like as an adult is something we could all do very well and, and much better. Something that this book uh, sort of made me remember is in college, um, there was always this table of of kids who were sort of the like, I guess, political theory, like philosophy uh, crew. Wait, and in high school? Something that, no, in college. Oh, okay. Okay. I was like, yeah. what, what was that cool did, Oh, did I say like, high school? No, I don't. You probably didn't. I just heard it. In my head, I was picturing my high school cafeteria expecting you to say the jocks or something. And instead, you're like, you know, the political philosophy and I was like, kids. <laughs> the philosophy nerds. <laughs> They're super nerds. into roles. But, <laughs> <laughs> but genuinely, you know, one thing that I guess, and, and maybe college is the time for this, right? But I, I did feel like there was sort of this... Um, like strain of existentialism or this strain of like you could just never be on firm footing with anything and like everything had to be questioned and there was no like sort of psychological like intellectual like foundation and uh that was sort of I guess a turnoff to me maybe that says more about just like who I am as a person but um I think that is what we want to avoid right and 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 maybe for some people this book like you are sort of like unwill you you haven't revisited a single thought or belief in, in a long time. And so you you might need to be pushed in this direction. But uh, yeah, I do think you also do not want to go too far in the opposite direction to where then you don't have those like deep ties that that ground you to your family or community or maybe your job or religious or whatever it is. Um, and so I, I totally am on the same page in terms of give your kids and hopefully yourself the permission to explore and to question. But also if all you ever do is question, like how productive a member of society, like will you really be able to be? So that's kind of where that. I landed. Yes. In all things, moderation, moderation in your beliefs. Um, and, and you're going to have to explore for yourself, which beliefs you hold tightly and which beliefs you hold loosely. And, you know, he talks about his family dinner with his kids and they would do myth busting dinners where each person would come to the table with something that the others maybe thought was true, but wasn't. That's a fun idea. Um, again, as long as you're holding it uh, pretty loosely. <laughs> uh, so that. lots of fun parenting tips in this book. I think that depending on where you are in life, you will just get really different things out of it. And that's always cool when you're reading a book, the idea that maybe if you read it 10 years from now, it'll be a very different experience. And it's why I was pretty pumped to talk to Harvest about this because um, generationally we're a little bit different, but I kind of love that actually we read a lot of the same things in it and maybe felt some yeah, of the same I, things. I that was so. kind of a surprise for me. 
It's probably because I'm like the last year you can be a millennial. I'm like a <laughs> baby millennial. I'm so I'm not quite year. Gen Z. Yeah. <laughs> so we actually are the same generation, just not really in any literal so. <laughs> meaningful sense. But <laughs> well, Harvest, thank you so much for joining Book Club. I hope you'll you'll come back again. Thanks for having me. It's great. And that brings us to an end of our quarterly theme on thinking about thinking. Next quarter, we are doing what it means to be human. And we've got three books lined up. I Contain Multitudes, The Microbes Within Us and a Grander View of Life by Ed Young. Um, of course, you knew we had to read about bacteria and microbes and all of these things that literally make us human. So little of our bodies as we think of them are our own DNA and genetic material. So I expect that book to be really fun and weird and exciting. The Anthropocene Reviewed, Essays on a Human-Centered Planet by John Green. This, uh, <laughs> this book is meant to be pretty funny, and I've heard really good reviews of it. I'm excited to read it because it reviews different facets of the human experience on a five-star scale. <laughs> Things like our keyboard or Canadian geese. Um, so obviously, this is like my exact sense of humor as best I can tell, so I am pumped about that. And finally... Humankind, A Hopeful History by Rutger Bregman. This is a Dutch historian that is trying to prove that human beings are, by their nature, good. And I feel like so often, especially in our political conversations or even just with friends, uh, there's this constant theme that humans are fallen, evil, bad. We would take advantage of each other if we could. I like the idea of being more trusting. I like being an optimist. I like being positive about other people. And so I was encouraged to see a book that wanted to take that thesis and try to prove it out. We'll see if we find it persuasive. Now, warning, the order of these books may change. We're going to send out an email pretty shortly with uh, which books will go in which month. So look out for that in your inboxes. But in the meantime, look forward to thinking about what it means to be human.